All right, well, if you have your Bibles tonight, why don't you open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the rest of chapter 4 tonight, verses 23 through 37. Let's go ahead and read that, and that's God's blessing upon our time here, and then we will dig into it. So starting in verse 3 of Acts chapter 4, if you don't have your Bible, it should be up there on the screen as well. And it says this, As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they learned the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle and rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power, or may may miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant. Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they preached the Word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, and so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because they because those who owned um, land or houses would, would sell them and, and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus, and he sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Again, God, just for this time we have together, I'm so thankful, Lord, that, that we hold this book in, in our hands, Father, your holy word that's been written for, for our benefit, Lord, to instruct us, God, to, to show us what you want us to, to be and, and how you want us to live, Father, Lord. In it, um, Lord, there's, there's things that we read that encourage us, that challenge us, that convict us, Lord, and whatever it is we need tonight, God, I pray that you would speak to each individual, Father, as you know each one of us, God. I pray tonight, Lord, that, um, that, that my mouth just becomes your tool, God, to speak to your people, Father. This is about you here tonight, God, not me. And so I just pray, God, that you would be honored, you would be magnified and glorified in this place, and we give this time completely to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the realities of the world that we live in is that healthy things grow, right? Um, that, that's just kind of the way God made it. Healthy things grow. Um, if you give a plant the right soil, the right amount of water and sunlight, What's going to happen? It's going to be a healthy plant. It's going to grow. It's going to produce, right? Uh, What's true in the plant world is also true with animals. It's also true with humans. With the right nourishment and care, animals and humans alike, they grow, right? They grow healthy. They grow strong because that's the way that God made the world. But what happens if you plant a seed in not so good soil or maybe it doesn't get the water that it needs or maybe it doesn't get the sunlight that it needs. It may live, it may even grow, but it'll never reach its full potential. Um, It'll never never yield the the fruit it would had it been planted in good soil and taken care of the way it should have been. The same is true with an animal or a a child. What what if an animal or a child is malnourished? Again, they'll probably still be alive, they'll probably even grow 
But again, they'll never reach the full potential they could have if they were truly healthy. And then the truth about both plants and life is that the lifespan of something that's not taken care of or something that's unhealthy will be cut short. Now, what's true when it comes to the lives of plants and animals is also true in the life of the local church. If a church is healthy, the natural result is that it's going to grow. But if a church is unhealthy, it will have its growth limited, but will eventually probably plateau or stop growing and eventually decline if the things that are causing the unhealth in a church aren't taken care of. And especially if they aren't taken care of, the end result of that is the church will die a premature death. Now, according to a couple of little studies I found this week, this one came out of what's known as the Healthy Journal. It says over the past five years, studies have shown that between 60 to 80% of American churches have either plateaued or declined. Isn't that crazy? 60 to 80% were, they said similar studies have shown that thousands of churches are closing their doors every single year. In fact, a 2021 Lifeway research study said this, that of, of Protestant churches, there are over 4,500 churches that close their door in America every single year. Isn't that crazy? Now, the good thing is there's 3,000 being planted, but there's still a 1,500 church deficit every year that passes. And so if you think about that, from 10 years ago until today, there is, there is over 15,000 less churches in the United States than there used to be. Now, what do these statistics tell us? They tell us that something is wrong. They tell us that the vast majority of the churches in our nation are unhealthy because they have missing components um, that are limiting their growth or causing them to decline or plateau or to die. Now, the thing about those statistics is that it should open our eyes as a church because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a statistic, See, the same thing that causes other churches to plateau or shrink or die can happen here if we're not careful. Just like plants or animals or people, there are things that the church needs to do to make it healthy and make sure it stays growing. And today as we look into Acts chapter 4, we're going to be talking about a number of those attributes that the church of Jerusalem had that I, I really believed is what helped them flourish and grow so well in the first century. Now, just as a recap, if you remember over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this, this time when Peter and John were going into the temple, they see the blind beggar, they heal them, they, they heal that man right, in the name of Jesus, and, and he's up standing around, the people come around trying to figure out what was going on, and, and Peter took that opportunity to begin preaching to these people, to tell them that the reason this man was healed wasn't because of their power, because of the power of the name of Jesus Christ, that man that they had crucified and yet was risen again, right, and, and so they, they, a couple of weeks ago we looked at that, that sermon from Peter, and then last week we kind of looked at the results of that sermon, we saw that there were kind of two different um, ways that people kind of received that. Now, on the good side of things, we, we saw that there were over 2,000 people who came to Christ that day. Over 2,000 people that, that, that got saved because of the, the message that Peter gave, but the other side of it was that the priests and the religious leaders were there weren't near as thrilled with his message as the rest of the people were. And so because the fact that they were speaking so boldly, it landed them in county lockup for the night, um, as we saw last week. Um, but, but as we saw, the next day Peter and John were, were not shaken. They, they refused to back down, and, and they were taken before the Jewish high court 
And just as a reminder, the same high court, the same men who had just sentenced Jesus to death not too long before this. And what was Peter's response to these men when they, when they asked him why in the world he was preaching in the name of Jesus? What was his response? Well, he told them the truth. With, without fear, unapologetically, he told them that they had killed their Messiah and they needed to repent. They needed to turn from their unbelief in sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. Now, one would think that that probably would have at least landed them one or two more nights in jail, right? Or worse. And, and yet, what did we see? They let him go. Now, why did they let him go? Well, we saw why they let him go. Because, one, the man who was lame, and they knew that man, was standing there healed. So, they couldn't deny the fact that a miracle had occurred, right? But the bigger thing we saw last week was they were afraid of the people. There were so many people that came to faith in Jesus that day. They, they, they said to themselves, these people are going to go crazy. They're going to riot if we don't let these people go. And so they let them go. And now this is where we're going to kind of jump back in today's verses. Now, in verse 23, we see that as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Now, if you remember what the priest told Peter and John, they told them never to speak in the name of Jesus, quit teaching in the name of Jesus, right? That's what they told him. And if you remember Peter and John's response, they were like, um, no. We're going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. We're going to keep telling people everything we've seen and heard. And pretty much the, the tone was, and you're not going to stop us, <laughs> which, which I absolutely love, right? But, but now let's look at this incredible response from this Jerusalem church. And, and as we do, as I said, we're going to be looking at um, hopefully seeing and learning from a number of things that, that enabled this church to flourish. And what we see in most of this, until at least all the way through verse 31, is really just a prayer. This, this church came together in prayer together. What I love about this passage of Scripture is it tells me that this church was a praying church. If you look at the first part of verse 24, it says, When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer. What I love about this, this church is that their, their first gut reaction was not to run in fear, but it was to run to God in prayer. That's the sign of a healthy church, Right? You know, if we want to be a church that is growing and healthy, we need to be a praying church. We need to have a solid prayer life as individuals for sure each and every day. Taking time to communicate with God each, each and every day. Going to the Lord, surrendering ourselves all over again to Him. And when I say this, I'm, I'm not talking about the quick three-minute prayer on my way to work, Lord, bless me, let's go. I'm talking about literally every day getting on our faces, on our knees, whatever that looks like before the Lord and asking Him to intervene in our lives. That's the type of prayer we need. Now, contextually though, this wasn't talking about individual prayer. This was talking about this church corporately coming together and praying. And can I tell you something? That is something we desperately need in this church. We need to pray together as God's people. Not just individually, but coming together as God's people and praying. Why? Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, that where two or three gather together in his name, he's there amongst them. I love what the great preacher of old Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. I like that. Um, Warren Wearsby, the commentator, said this, Believing prayer releases God's power and enables God's hand to move. Do you realize that, that God 
designed in his sovereignty that prayer would be the tool that would get his hand to move on earth. Do you realize that? A preacher of old, his name is E.M. Bounds. I want to just read a quote from him as well. He was a a chaplain during the the Civil War back in the mid-1800s and then pastored after that. But listen to what he says about prayer. He says, God has of his own motion placed himself under the law of prayer and has obligated himself to answer the prayers of men. He has ordained prayer as a means whereby he will do things through men as they pray, which he would not otherwise do. So if prayer puts God to work on earth, then by the same token, prayerlessness rules God out of the world's affairs and prevents him from working. The driving power, the conquering force in God's cause is God himself. Prayer puts God in full force into God's work. Ooh, that's good, isn't it? He went on to say this as well. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better or new organizations or more and novel methods, but men, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. It does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. That goes for women too, by the way. (laughs) We need to pray, folks. We as a church need to come together Asking God to move in our hearts as a church, to move in our church. We need people in this church committing to come together outside of Saturday night and just getting together to pray. Like when you all go out for dinner sometime or go back to the house and play some games, take some time and pray for the church. Pray for one another. I will tell you, we have Bible study here every Wednesday night at 6, 30, or 6 o'clock, and following that at 7.30, we mean just a handful of us, we, we, we take time just, just to pray for our church. Specifically, just praying for our church, right? And we need this happening more and more. Like, what do you think God would do if our church was gathered together just on different nights of the week, different people, families together, and friends together? They just getting together and having dinner and just taking some time asking God to move. Do you think God would do it? Oh boy, I think so. He moves through prayer. This was a praying church, and they were also a confident church. Now, what were they confident in? Were they confident that they had it all together? Were they confident because they had the apostles leading them? No. That they were confident in the power and the sovereignty of God. If you look down to verse 24, the second part of verse 24, it says, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Now, th- there's power in just stating facts about God, isn't there? Like, God already knew this. I mean, he, he knew he was sovereign. He knew he was the creator of everything. But, but why did they say that? Because they were standing in the power of the sovereignty of God. I mean, they, what they were saying in, in this, think about where they were at. They were fearing for their lives. They were, I mean, in a, in a, in a circumstance in this town of the city of Jerusalem where there was the Romans and there was the Jewish council and they were all against the Christians. I mean, Jesus had just died. We're going to see mass persecution coming after this in the book of Acts. And their statement was, my God, who is my creator. They knew the power of God. See, they, they believed in God's sovereign hand. They knew he was sovereign over all things. And, and they knew that if, that if he could just speak in the world's coming to existence, what was too tough for them? I mean, think about the weapons of war that could have come against these Christians. They're like, God made the materials that made the weapons. He spoke them into existence. 
How amazing is that? Why, do they, why would they fear, right? They were a confident church, confident in the power of God. If you go down to verse 25 and 26, he says, You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. Rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, this is a passage from Psalm chapter 2. Now, when this was written, it was written when, by, by King David when King David was king um, over Israel. And at this time, I mean, he was the power. Like, like nations around him came and paid him tribute. They, they submitted themselves to him. As the, the ruler of that whole area, they wouldn't come up against them, but they weren't happy about it. Many of them weren't happy about it. In fact, if you read back in Psalm chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, Listen to what it says here. It says, Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem and on my holy mountain. See, although they wanted to be these people back at the time, although they wanted to be free from David's reign as king, they refused to come up against him because they knew who had David's back. The God of Israel had David's back, and they knew they didn't stand a chance of coming up against him. Friends, we need to be confident in the power of God. Because the same God of David is still the same God of you and I still today. But do we believe it? Do we believe that God has our backs? Do we believe that he's going to protect us and sustain us as long as he has plans for us here in this world? Do we believe that? Uh, Do we believe Isaiah 41 and verse 10 that says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up by my righteous right hand. Do we believe that? I hope you do. Because the further we go into the future, it's not going to get easier for us as Christians. It's going to get more difficult to stand. The the further we go into the future, the more and more it's going to become like the first church in Jerusalem, what they were dealing with the persecution they were dealing with, and the struggle they were dealing with to stay faithful to the Lord. And what's interesting about Psalm 2 that Peter quotes here is that although it was referring directly to King David at the time, it was also clearly a a prophetic passage about the future time when Jesus is going to come and reign as king of all the earth. Because you realize that's coming, right? He's coming back. He's going to reign as king of kings and lord of lords here in this place. And we need to take confidence in the word of God that if you belong to him, you reign with him. So what do we have to fear? We are on the side of Christ, the one who already holds all the authority in heaven and on earth. You realize as Christians that whether we live or die in this life, we are already the victors because Christ already won the victory. Friends, we need to stand in that and have confidence in that. We need to have confidence that he is all-powerful, that he is absolutely sovereign. I love Isaiah 46 in verses 9 and 10 that says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I love this last part. My purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Only God can say that. Who's going to stop him? Who's going to stop him? Satan? Satan was spoken into existence just like this world was spoken into existence. How can the created thing stop the creator? It can't do it. God is absolutely sovereign and powerful. We need to take confidence in that. But not just in God's power, but also in God's 
wisdom and God's purposes. If you look down at verse 27 and 28, it says, in fact, this has happened here in this very city. Talk about that prophecy that David spoke of. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But look at verse 28. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. It wasn't by accident that Jesus died. I mean, it, it's true that the people killed him, but it didn't take God by surprise. The, the very purpose that Christ came was to suffer and die. How often do we think about that? Notice that, that think about Jesus, right? Sometimes God's plan for his people is to suffer for him to accomplish what he's trying to do. And the question we should ask ourselves is, are we still going to be confident in him if suffering comes? Like, is it possible that there will be times that God knows suffering is needed in our lives to do what he knows he has planned to do? Is, is that possible? I think so because Jesus is our example. Without the suffering and death of Christ, guess what? We'd have no salvation. We will be up at crib without a paddle. And honestly, that's the context of what we're talking about here in verses 27 and 28. See, Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, they were all involved in killing Jesus. They did it, but God ordained it to happen. The people that killed Jesus thought they were getting rid of a nuisance, but at the same time, God was accomplishing our salvation through that exact same thing. Friends, we are serving the God that has declared the end from the beginning. You, you realize the last book of your Bible is Revelation? And you realize the very last book of the Bible, it, it shows that, that not only is God reigning in a new heaven and new earth, so are we who belong to him. It, it's finished. It's done. It's already declared, but it's just happening in real time now. We need to take confidence in that. And when we walk through suffering or difficulty or persecution in this life, know that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose and love. It, right? I mean, if you belong to him, he's working it according to his will, his purposes, and his plans do you trust in the wisdom of our sovereign God? Do you trust in him? Because if, if you, your actions will, will show if you do or not. Because when those things come, if the first response is fear and anxiety and worry and, and, and anger and whatever that is, then we're not trusting in the sovereign wisdom of God. We're letting our circumstances rule our actions. Trust in the Lord. A church is willing to remain faithful to God even through suffering is a sign of a healthy church. So they were a praying church, a confident church. They were also a bold church. Look at verse 29. And now, O Lord, says, hear their, <clears throat> hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. See, in spite of the fact that they were fully aware that times of trial were going to come as a result, what did they ask for? Did you notice they didn't ask for protection? Did you notice they didn't ask God to hide them? They said, no, God, give us boldness that we can speak the truth of your word. And the, don't you, I mean, that, that's a bold statement. Like, they didn't let fear stop them. They didn't, they didn't let threats stop them. They didn't let severe suffering stop them. We're going to see it here in Acts chapter 5, like, that, that Peter and the apostles were, were, um, were taken captive again by these priests, and they were flogged. I mean, they had skin shredded from their body, and you know what their response was? They went away in praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. That's crazy. 
We need to be bold like that if we want to be a healthy church. See, our church, if we want to be a healthy church, if we want to be healthy Christians, we cannot cower to the culture wars. We cannot cower to the people who don't like what the Bible says. We cannot dismiss the Word of God because it might offend somebody. We have to be bold and stand in the truth of the Word of God. Now, do we need to do that, as God's Word says, in love? Yeah. But we still need to do it. And, and friends, if we're ridiculed for it, so be it. If we're persecuted, that's okay. If the day comes that we're arrested for speaking truth, so be it. And let's stand together. Because I can tell you this, I would rather suffer for God because I'm speaking the truth than being accepted by a culture because I compromised it. Let's not compromise the truth. Let's stand in the Word of God. We need to be, commit ourselves to being bold here as a church. Can I tell you something? Our community, our state, our nation, our world needs bold Christians. Christians who will stand for truth. Christians who will proclaim the gospel message of Jesus to this world. Christians who will confront immorality and sin. Christians who will boldly live out their lives and their Christian faith. Christians who will stand boldly in opposition to evil. We need to be bold Christians just like these people were bold Christians. They were a bold church, and when I, I love verse 30, they were an expectant church. They expected God to do big things. Look at verse 30. Stretch out your hand with healing power, with may miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. See, these people expected God to show up. They, they had an expectation that God was going to move in power. They didn't just come to church out of routine. They came expecting God to show up and do something amazing. Friend, that's faith. Like, do we have that same expectation still today? Do we wake up in the morning just expecting God to do something awesome? Like, do we come to church expecting God to move, anticipating that he's going to speak to us personally, that he's going to move in our hearts and lives? Like, are we, are we preparing ourselves before we come to church, saying, God, I need you. Let your word speak to my heart and change me. Make me more like Jesus. Lord, move in. Are we doing that? Like, do we come expecting that through the proclamation of God's word that people are going to be delivered from the bondage of sin? Do we come expecting that the people we actually invited to church will actually come? Do we expect it? Do, do we expect that people are going to come here and get saved? Boy, I hope so. Let's be an expectant church. Let's be a church like these people in Acts who had radical faith. See, see, faith isn't just the belief that God can do something. True faith is the expectation that God will do something. We need to expect God to move here, expect God to show up in power. We need to ask him to increase our faith so that we can start actually believing that he's still a God of miracles still today. Pray. Ask God to increase your faith. That's biblical. Uh, listen to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. 
Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you, come, when you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. Oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Friends, that's our God. Do we believe it? Are we an expectant church? Friends, let's stop putting God in a box. Let's stop limiting him and instead live our lives out with expectation that the God we read about in the Bible is the same God we serve today. They were an expectant church and they were an empowered church. Look at verse 31. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they preached the word of God with boldness. And I'll just add, in a time when their lives were literally at risk. These people were living an empowered life filled up with the Spirit of God. You know, when you think about Scripture and you think about all these acts of faith that we read about in the Bible where God used these people to impact this world, to impact people. You know, one common denominator in every single one of them was that they were empowered by the Spirit of God. I mean, you think about Gideon, a man who was timid and fearful, hiding away, and yet when the Spirit of God came on him with 300 men, he took on a Midianite army, Midianite army of over 120,000 men in one. Or, or think about a young boy named David filled with the Spirit who defeated a giant named Goliath who the entire army of Israel was shaking in their boots and wouldn't go out to face him. And then a little shepherd boy went out with a sling and a stone because he was filled with the power of the Spirit of God and slayed a giant. Think about Peter and John and the apostles. I mean, who were they were before Acts? Who were they before Acts? They were just a ragtag bunch of misfits. Just normies. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They weren't anybody special. They weren't trained. And yet they, were, they turned the world literally upside down because they were filled with the Spirit of God. They went out proclaiming the gospel. See, what did they and the rest of all the heroes of our faith have in common? They lived their lives within the power of God. Meaning, they lived their lives in full dependence upon the wisdom and power of Almighty God. And the results over and over and over again is that it was that through these people, God did incredible, incredible things. God will still do that, friends. If we want to be a church that is healthy and growing and make an impact on our world, we cannot do it in our own wisdom and strength. Instead, we must position ourselves in a place that requires absolute dependency upon God. And I would ask this. Think about your life right now. Think about everything you're doing in your life right now. Are you doing anything that truly requires faith? And here's what I mean by that. Is there anything you're doing right now that if God doesn't show up, you're going to absolutely fall on your face? What about us as a church? What are we doing right now that requires us to be fully dependent upon God? See, what is true of our lives is the same is true of our life in the life of our church. If we don't have a vision that requires God to show up, for it, to, for it to succeed, can I tell you something? We're not living fully dependent on the power of God. We're living in our own strength. One man named Philip Brooks said this. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. 
Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. No, pray for powers equal to your tasks. That is the way the early church prayed, and that is the way God's people should pray today. You know, we could talk in detail about what it means and what it takes to be filled with the Spirit of God. We talked about that last week, right? I mean, if we're not spending time with God, we're not going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. If we're not in God's Word, we're not going to be empowered by the Spirit of God, right? If we have sin in our life that's unconfessed, we're not going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. What do those things do? It stifles the Spirit of God. It, it limits what God can and wants to do through our lives, and those things are vital to talk about, to talk about. But, but can I tell you something? Even if you're in prayer, even if you're in God's word, even if you confess your sin every day, can I tell you something? That, that, that doesn't mean that you're walking in the power of God. You're in position to, but it doesn't mean you're actually doing it. See, to do that actually requires ourselves to, to put ourselves in positions where it requires God to show up. Like we have to put ourselves in a position that, that, that drives us to our knees on our face before God and say, God, I cannot do this if you don't show up and help me. See, that's when we're going to experience the power of the Lord. When we place ourselves in a position where we're absolutely reliant upon him. Why do we need to do that? Because it's where God wants us. That's where we're going to see God show up in power. See, I'll tell you this about our church. If we don't have a God-sized vision, can I tell you something? We're never going to see God-sized results. I want to say that again. If we don't have a God-sized vision, we will never see God-sized results. If our vision doesn't require God to show up, that means we're doing it on our own power and we're never going to see his power. See, as a church, if we want to see God move, we have to get out of our comfort zones. We have to start dreaming bigger. We, as a church, need to get on our faces before the Lord and ask him to show us what he wants us to do. And it's going to require us, as a church, to step out in faith and ask God to accomplish something that we know full well that we cannot accomplish on our own. That's what we need to get, friends, if we want to be an empowered church. They were an empowered church, and they were also a unified church. Verse 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. Um, Psalm 133 and verse 1 says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I especially love 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 that tells us this, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and in purpose. You know what I love about the first century church, at least, at least here? Was it, this was not a church that was distracted by petty garbage that caused division. This was a church that was focused on their mission. And because they were focused on their mission, there was no time for division. Because their eyes were fixed upon Jesus and what he wanted to do. There were a people that were preaching the word of God, that were boldly go out there and, procl and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And this people had one common enemy and it wasn't one another, it was Satan. See, these people were so focused on their mission, they were so devoted to growing in their walk with the Lord that there was no time left to focus on the petty irritants of life that so often tear churches apart today. You know, I can tell you that if we were all focused in our lives on the things of God, 
Can I tell you something? There would no, be no way Satan would have a way in the tears apart. Because when we're focused on our mission, we're not focused on the petty things that cause problems. So let's don't get distracted by those things. Like I understand we're all different. I understand that we're all in different walks of life. I understand that there are probably things about me that drive you insane. <laughs> and if not, just wait till you get to know me better because there will be. Uh, we all have that, don't we? But friends, let's remember that we are brothers and sisters in arms and we have a war to wage. And we are not the enemy Satan is. If we can stay focused on that, Satan will never have a way in. So they were a unified church and they were a gospel preaching church. Verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. Now I'm, gonna spend, I'm not going to spend a lot of time for the sake of time on this point. But I will say this, they kept the main thing, the main thing that kept them from being distracted. Like the gospel was at the center of everything they did. It was the power behind their passion. It was the focus behind their fortitude, the message that drove their movement. These people never lost sight of what Jesus had done for them, and they did all they could to make sure as many people as possible had the same opportunity to respond to the gospel as they did. Their focus was on Christ. It was on proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to the nation. That, that's, that was their goal. You know something, I love fellowship. I love hanging out with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love getting together and eating food like we're going to do tonight. But can I tell you something? One of the great dangers that many churches have succumbed to over the years is losing sight of the mission and they become really nothing more than a glorified country club where Christians gather for fellowship. Let's not become that. Let's keep the gospel and our mission as Christians at the forefront of all that we do. And finally, the last thing I want us to see is that they were a sacrificing church. Look at verses 34 through 37. They were neat. It says there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give them to give to those in need. For instance, there was a man named Joseph, uh, the, the one the apostles named Barnabas, which is the son of encouragement. We're going to talk about him a lot in the book of Acts. Um, he, he was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now, think about this. These people own houses, they own land, they sold it and gave the money to the church. Can I tell you something? That is radical, radical sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. These people weren't throwing their leftovers into the offering plates. They were selling homes and property for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Now, one example they give is this man named Barnabas. And just an interesting note about Barnabas, he was a Levite. And according to the Jewish law, Levites weren't even supposed to own land. And, and so there's a few options here, right? One, that like many of the Jews did at the time, they weren't enforcing that particular law, possibly, who knows. Or maybe they were enforcing it and Barnabas was maybe convicted when he came to faith in Christ, like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And so he sold the land, right? Or it could be that he owned land in Cyprus where it really wasn't a thing, right? Whatever it was, he sold land, as did many other people. They sold their possessions and they gave it to the apostles. Why would they do this? What was their motivation to give away such great earthly treasure that was rightly, rightfully theirs? Well, they knew it wasn't rightfully theirs. Look back at verse 32 just for a moment here. The second part of it. Look what it says. 
And they felt that what they owned was what? Not their own. And so they shared everything they had. See, they, they knew what was theirs wasn't really theirs. It was God's first and foremost. And for all that God had done for them, the least they could do was sacrifice some of their worldly wealth to build God, God's kingdom. And can I tell you something? In doing so, here's what I guarantee you. They built heavenly wealth. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 and 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust are stored and thieves break in and steal. But what? Rather store up for yourselves, for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy or thieves. Don't break and steal. And look, the final verse, verse 21. For where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. See, friends, the reason they were sacrificing like they were because these people, they had a great treasure, and it wasn't their wealth. It was Christ. Their greatest treasure was the Lord. And because of that, they valued what God valued. They treasured what God treasured. And giving up earthly treasure meant the expansion of his kingdom and helping take care of their fellow Christians. So be it, and they gave it away willingly. Friends, do we treasure God like that? Do we treasure his church like that? Do we treasure the mission we've been given like that? If we do, can I tell you something? It will transform this church. Friends, I don't want to be a church that's a glorified country club. I want us to have an impact on the world with the message of Christ. I want us to accomplish a God-sized vision here, the one that only he can do. I want to see God move in power, but to do that, we need to be healthy. We need to be continually seeking him, fully dependent upon him. And if we can get there, I can tell you this, it's going to get exciting. It'll be worth it to see the power of God move like he did here. And I still believe he can. Let's trust in him. Let's put ourselves in that position that we requires us to, to have faith and trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, what a challenging, challenging passage of scripture, Lord. Father, I know as I prepared this this week, Lord God, I, I looked at a number of these points and went, man, I'm just not there yet. God, and I think if we were all honest, Father, we would all say the same thing, that there's, that there's areas, of our li- areas of our lives that we know are not in alignment with, what, um, with, with where you want it to be, God. And, and I just pray, God, that as you've revealed those things, that, God, we would just do business with you and take care of them. That right now in this place, Lord, as we sing this song here in a moment, Father, that we would just do business with you. That God, if you, if you have spoken to us, we'll just speak back and just ask you to, to forgive us where we've fallen short and to strengthen us to help us to, to do what we're called to do. God, I want to be a church that makes an impact on this world. I want to be a church that makes a difference, Father. I want to be a church, Lord, that, that when our lives are over, Father, we have seen people who were saved, people whose lives were transformed, not because of our power, but simply because we were dependent upon you and your power showed up. God, let us be that church. Use us, God, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, there may be somebody in this place that has never made a decision to follow Christ. And if, that, if there's anybody in this place tonight, Lord, your, your word has made it so simple and so clear. It says that we've all sinned against you. And without Christ, we will be absolutely hopeless. And yet, the very reason you sent Jesus was to go to a cross and die for our sin, and he did it. 
He died for his sin. The Bible says he was buried, and three days later he rose again, defeating sin and death. And God, your word tells us if that a person will simply believe in those things and call upon the name of Jesus to, to forgive them of their sins, to be their Lord, to be their Savior, and commit their lives fully to him, God, your word declares that they shall be saved. And so, Father, if there's anybody in this place that's never made that decision tonight, let them call out upon your name in this time. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, as we close tonight,